Welcome to Property and Investing with Grant and Charlie, the place where we give you access to all the strategies, tactics, and tools to become a successful property investor. You will see that Charlie is not actually next to me. I've booted him from the podcast. No, I'm just joking. Uh, Charlie and Aaron Wybrow, our lending specialist, have actually done an episode together whilst I was away on New Year's, enjoying myself on the sunny beaches of Melbourne. Uh, so I am just doing the intro and then I'm going to kick it across to them. I just want to let everybody know as well, if you do want to be notified every single time we release one of these episodes, but also get access to any of the resources that we do come out with, the best way to get onto that list is head over to propertyandinvesting.com forward slash newsletter, put in your name and email, and we'll let you know every single time we drop one of these episodes as well as some more resources. Now, before I hand it over to Charlie and our guest, Aaron, let's cue the disclaimer. It's Charlie here from Property and Investing, and I need to let you know that Grant and I and the Property Investing team are in no way, shape or form qualified to give you financial advice. We strongly encourage you seek out and use professionals when comparing investment products or making investment decisions. Today's a very different episode, most notably because there's no Grant. Now, Aaron, does it feel a bit lonely without Grant? Oh, a, well, we always miss Grant, but this episode's going to be awesome anyway. Well, I tell you what, if it ends up a little bit better, we might not actually have him back. We'll have to see it. Now, for everyone tuning in today, what we're actually going to be discussing is the mortgage rate cliff. Now, For myself personally, one of the things I've really noticed is this is a topic the media are driving hard with a bit of doom and gloom around it. This is something where I almost feel they're, what is it? If it bleeds, it leads. They're really, uh, what is it? Exaborating? Is that the word? I'm not even sure that's the word. Exaggerating. That's the one I'm after. Yeah, to make a point and really just drive views and clicks online, where I thought it'd be really great today to bring on someone who actually is experienced with lending and can explain it a bit better than what is perceived online, and that's Aaron. Now, I do have to disclose, Aaron is a sponsor of this show, and he's also my mortgage broker and grants as well. So we do have to indicate that we use Aaron's services, and he does come on this show um, as a sponsor as well. We are biased, but he's damn good at what he does. So Aaron... Could you please let our audience know who you are and what you do? So, I'm Aaron Wybrow. I co-run a uh, business called Diagnostics and Finance. We are a boutique mortgage broking firm. We specialize in strategy around mortgage uh, and property investing and the right structures of the lending to enable you to um, buy your properties at your own pace. Um, I do um, play the bagpipes. So, being a complex instrument... Um, it does help me uh, unwind and relax, but it is related to the mortgage broking area because it's such a complex instrument. Most people look at mortgages, and they look at it from afar like the ba- sound of a bagpipes, and it's really cool. But when you get up and close, there's breathing, there's movements, there's a whole range of artwork that's in there, and it's similar to mortgage broking where trying to get the right lenders, the lenders that are going to give us the right borrowing capacity and plug in what you need for your property portfolio. It's just a really interesting topic in itself. I, I really feel like many investors treat uh, mortgage brokers like commodities, like one is all the same. And as I've gone further in the journey myself, I've really come to understand it's actually like there's a bit of art to this. It's like art and science, like being strategic in which banks have what products, when they're used or can be used, and then the impacts on future things. 
Like it's a con- it's a continually readjusting Rubik's cube to be solved. It's very very fascinating in that way, and we might even do a whole episode on that in itself. But Aaron, I want to stick uh, to this topic because when I first heard about the mortgage rate cliff, I won't lie, I uh, adjusted my risk profile. I'm not sure I slept well that night, uh, which was actually after an ABC video. Just to bring everyone onto the same page, can you please sum up in as simple terms as possible, what is the mortgage rate cliff? And uh, we'll start with that. What is the mortgage rate cliff? So the mortgage market has two products out there. One's the variable rate and one's the fixed rate. And in the last two years, the fixed rates have been taken up in enormous amounts because they were, we had record low interest rates. And having a fixed rate that is a low level and then having a variable rate which fluctuates, what's happened in the last um, eight months is the interest rates have risen from the variable. So variable people are paying more and more as the rates go up. <clears throat> Obviously, the banks are getting a bit more competitive with their, their margins, but the fixed rates have been remaining the same and they'll remain the same until they expire. And if the rates keep going up, when that fixed rate expires, the next day, the borrower that has had a fixed rate will be on the standard variable rates at whatever discounts they're able to achieve. So they may start going from say 2.69 or 2.29 or some some cases 1.99 and then jump up to the five or five and a half or six and a half, wherever the rate lands at the time during the next 12 to 24 months. And that's where the cliff comes in. Yeah, this is where the cliff kind of like uh, analogy comes into play here or the idea behind it. It, It's really fascinating to me because it's a complex uh, thing that's unusual. And we had this chat uh, previously where we were talking about like what's the difference in normal times here? So we'll call it in the pre-pandemic times. You had mentioned that uh, the balance between variable and fixed was uh, how much roughly? Like let's just say if you went back – uh, five years, what would the balance normally be between the two products? Well, if we look at it over the last last little while, so we're seeing we're going to see that next year, one third of all loans and are fixed, and two thirds are going to come off that fixed. And that, if we look at the stats between March twenty twenty and December twenty twenty two, the increase of fixed rate take up was was massive. And back in March twenty twenty, we only had about fifteen percent of loans taken up as as fixed. Then, when we moved into June twenty twenty um, area, it jumped up to thirty five, peaking in June, July, and September twenty twenty two at forty five percent of all new lending was fixed. So it sort of sits around that that fifteen percent area 15 25 percent area of people taking up fixed and what's really interesting is that if you look at the history of interest rates the three-year fixed rate and the variable rate usually run quite similar to to each other and three-year and the five-year are probably the most common that people will take out when they choose a fixed rate yeah, it, it's a fascinating topic. So it's not only just the jump in rate, but it's the volume in people that are going to experience this jump in rate, which again makes it the cliff, right? Yeah. If it was only 10% of loans that were suddenly going to go from, let's say, 2% up to 5%, don't get me wrong, still impactful, but for it to be above 30% in this environment really changes the amount of households that are going to experience like a significant change to their household budget. So really, really fascinating stuff there. Now, by chance, just to really, uh, I suppose, we'll make this more interesting. I know you've prepared some numbers here. 
if someone has a $500,000 mortgage and they'd been on a, a really good fixed rate deal and then suddenly this change was going to come in, what's the difference in like their, let's say their monthly or weekly uh, mortgage payment going to be? So if if we take, a, we'll take the 2.69 fixed rate because that seems to be um, a more common one that I'm finding coming off and some of the lower ones. But if we pick on this one, a $500,000 loan at 2.69 is $2,025 um, there and 35 cents a month. Uh, as that loan comes off a two-year fixed rate, the remaining 28 years of that mortgage, one of the best rates that we've got today being the 30th of the 12th um, in 2022 is 4.59, 4.54, which means for if it's your own place, this is on your own place, so owner-occupied rate, would be $2,545.32. So that's an increase of $519 a month. And if we go down the line of fixed rate on investor and we take the 2.69 and we jump up to the 4.86 or even 5.14 at some of the other, between that range at today, the 30th of the 12th, um, that would increase your repayments between $700 a month and $784 a month, which would translate down to about $161 to $181 a week increase in repayments on that mortgage overnight. Um, so that's what we've got to, that's what we're in for, and that's what we've got to prepare for as our rates come off fixed. So I just want to repeat that one back. So for your principal place of residence, if you had a $500,000 mortgage, which if you live in Melbourne or Sydney is unlikely, right, you're uh, going to go up about 500 bucks a week is what right. would be the expectation there. And we I would even that. say that's on a really good deal, right? Mm. I would say that it's probably going to be more than that. I even think on my own PPR, my rate is higher than that. And then on the other side of things in the investing category, for every five hundred thousand, the jump is about to go up about seven hundred bucks. Is that about accurate there? That that's about accurate. And then if you boil it down to, most investors will look at what their weekly rent is, um, and if we're going to go up by one hundred and sixty one dollars a week, um, what have we been doing and what have we been preparing for for our investment property? Or the the reason that people take out fixed mortgages in the first place is th this is probably the most unique area of time that. Um, people come when people come into uh, my world to look at fixed rates. They want to. They want me to see what the crystal ball is going to do with the interest rate, and they want to take out a fixed rate so they can prevent um, having increases in their repayment if the variable rate goes up. Now we're we're playing that out right now. The variable rate did go up, so the people that did take fixed rates out are not paying the current variable rate. So they've played quite well. So investors that took a fixed rate, they, they've, they've played quite well. We've just got to be mindful that it's going to come off. People that do take out fixed rates, you, they're going to come off. So make sure you're prepared for that. And you've played the game. So let's let's make the benefit of it and um, then prepare for the cliff. And cliffs are not too hard to jump up. They You, you can get a rope. You can prepare your full drive. You can do do a lot of things beforehand. So that's where I want to take this conversation and I, I want to ask some very uh, – I'd love some insight from you first though. You have quite a plethora of investors you work with, right? It's not like you work with one or two investors. You get to look inside many portfolios. How many of the investors do you work with are doing things today and preparing for this mortgage rate cliff? Like is there awareness to what's coming high? Has the media done a reasonable job in going, hey, this uh, mortgage rate cliff is coming and people are potentially looking to refinance or is there a huge amount of like, I don't want to say ignorance or neglect, but I'm sure you get what I mean here. 
Um, the, the, the media's done a, a pretty good job to throw lots of spanners in the works in regards to how the um, uh, to, to put a lot of fear out there related to um, what rates are doing, um, how you're going to pay a lot more. Um, you might have to sell off everything uh, and all that sort of stuff. So that's, that's um, put a lot of, lot of fear out there. What I'm seeing with a lot of investors, um, not many of my investors are fixed. Um, some are. Um, I've found a lot of first-time investors have taken out a, a fixed rate just to get used to a, a number. So the rate, the rate of repayment doesn't change. They might be first-time getting into the, in, into the market. They want to get used to the property managers, the any maintenance costs, the change of tenants, change of lease agreements. They want to have that stability. Um, to be able to budget for this investment property. Um, but in the main, even myself, I'm not even fixed. So uh, a lot of people were just looking at how does this next property fit into my portfolio? How does the income balance work? And, and do I need a tax deduction or do I need something to add cash to my portfolio? Um, they're not totally looking at the interest rate, even though it becomes a, a significant part. And you have to get the rate down as far as you can for the specific circumstances of the borrower. But that's that's what I'm. That's what I'm seeing right now. It's always interesting. I've been resistant to fixed rate loans myself because I don't like the uh, inflexibility that comes with them. Like when people hear fixed uh, loans, right? It's like they think they're just locking in rate. I think a lot of people forget that you're also locking in the loan with that as well, and like breaking that loan if you do need to do a refinance or change banks or whatever it is can actually be very expensive. And I've never liked the risk that's come with them and have been, as I said, personally adversive, not financial advice, but personally adversive. Speak to a broker like Aaron who can help guide you on that. But I can get the appeal for someone who's like maybe a bit nervous and wants certainty, right? They want to lock in something for five years just so that they can get comfortable with being an investor or something like that. Well, there, there, there's some stories around that one. Like um, when you're on a fixed rate right now, why do you want to break it? Like you've got a cheap rate right now, so you've got to really have some justifications to break it. And and a few few conversations I've had with people is that you might not be able to borrow with that bank that you've got the fixed rate with, which means your equity is locked away. And if your equity is locked away, that could help. That could prevent you making a move. And if you're wanting to make a move in this upwards rates interest rate cycle, and you have the income, the stability in the portfolio, and the right the right team around you, and you want to buy up a an, an asset that's a, a opportunistic, um, you may be locked up with that equity. There are ways obviously around that. Like if you've got a fixed rate and you want to put more lending on there, you can typically add a split to that loan at that same bank, but you've got to meet the bank's criteria to do that. Um, so you can do that and it's not an uncommon thing. We're, we're finding a lot of artwork or that art of mortgage broking is that we are trying to, where possible, hold the fixed rates in place because they're cheap for the client make use of the next few months, get the next opportunity. But we've had to top up with the current lender. We've had to um, go into the battles that we do with the, the credit managers to get the right cash out, the right um, resources back out so that you can you have the deposits and have the costs accommodated to buy that next investment property. But at times I've, I've had people two or three months before their expiry of their fixed rate because fixed rate expiries have, they're not a new thing. They've been expiring and everything gets expired. There's probably more expiring today that we record this podcast of people's fixed rates coming off and they're facing the cliff as we've, we're talking about. 
And we might take an opportunity where the fixed rate's going to expire in a couple of months and go, no, nah, we've got an opportunity on the table. We'll just stop it, stop the, the um, fixed rate and go for that opportunity. And the costs associated with fixed rates right now, in the last 10 years, the break costs of the fixed rates have been quite, um, they've been quite large compared to the variable rate. And where you've got that switch, where you've got the fixed rate up here and the variable rate down here, you get a big break cost in that mortgage. And I've seen break costs where, from a 10-year fixed rate being like $40,000, $60,000. But, but right now, as the variable rate is higher than the current fixed rates, the break costs are not there anymore. And we're, we're seeing that clients are getting letters from their bank going, hey, you can actually move on if you don't want this fixed rate. And I think that's quite quite an interesting move from some of those banks because we've got to act in the best interest. If it's low, let's keep it low, but they are letting you move on where your fixed rate is a bit older than what it is today. What makes this so interesting? And I know Grant's in this scenario where they're actually offering to uh, let him out of a fixed rate loan. Of course they are, right? If mm. they can move him from a 2% rate to a 5% <laughs> rate, I would too. But it actually could be at his advantage, right? If he wants to uh, make a move, to use your words there, and maybe refinance and get some equity out to buy another property, that could be actually really beneficial to him as well. Where that break cost, even if it was uh, you know, against his advantage, would just be another reason not to do it. So there are reasons to take uh, advantage of that. Curiously, just a little quick one here, Aaron. What's the longest fixed rate loan you can get in Australia? Because I actually thought five was the longest and you just mentioned yeah. 10. Yeah, you can get 10s. Um, I think there's not many people offering 10-year fixed rates at the moment. The maximum I've, I see most of the clients looking and talking to me about or even wanting to see what the differences are because if the variable is going up, they want to see what the fixed rate is currently is usually up to five, but there are a couple of lenders that can do 10. Um, similarly, on the other side, related to interest only with fixed rates too, is the um, in the main, the fixed rate has to match the interest only term that you have as well. So if you want a two-year fixed rate, you'll get a two-year interest only. If you want a five-year fixed rate, you have to match that to five years interest only as well. And those set of borrowers are going to have an interesting time as well because their numbers are a little higher coming off a fixed interest only loan as well. Completely. And there's this other uh, fascinating part of this mortgage rate, Cliff, that I'd love some insight from you as well on. Like when someone has a PPR, let's say, and it's their own place they live in, they go from this 2% rate to this 5% rate. There's no rental income <clears throat> or rent increase coming from that to offset it. So it's the household budget that gets impacted. It's the earnings on that household. Where when an investor um, has been hit with this potentially same circumstance, we're all also experiencing like rent rises going up substantially. So they're not necessarily seeing the impacts in the same way. Now, this might be a question I, I haven't prepped you for, but I'd love to know, do we have any insight or knowledge on like how many PPR type investors, oh, sorry, PPR or investment loans are on this type of fixed rate thing? Do we see that it's going to be more something that impacts the households or the investors? Like, is there any knowledge around that? Um, well, observations on on a principal place of residence or your own place versus a, an investment. Um, I don't have too much data on the differences of how many billions of dollars or the percentage of coming off fixed rates. I've got the global numbers of 
hundreds of billions of dollars coming off fixed rates and even one of the major banks being 53 billion dollars is going to roll off next year of the the fixed rates what i what i do find is the mentality of owner occupieds versus investors is very very different um so we we talk about we need shelter we need food we need sleep and we'll do everything we can to keep that safety for us. Or we can put it in Maslow's hierarchy of needs if we want to get a little bit psychological there, is safety is our second second to sleep and food and um, that, that level. So we're always going to find that we're going to be repaying our owner-occupied, even if it goes up by five, six, seven hundred $700 a month, we will find usually find a way. Or we might um, start to change strategy on it. We might go and rent and rent out our current house and get rental income where there's a mortgage because still at the moment we're finding that rents in some places it's personal situations determine where that is is that rents can be a little less um whereas you can get a mortgage mortgage paid via renter so there's a few different strategies you can bring into it as the fixed rates come off so just an idea there if someone really falls into trouble before they're going to sell their home they might go live with their parents for example and then rent the house out and they've still got the income from the job they've now got this rental income they're going to ride through this time and potentially be able to get back into the home and then the second thing is as you mentioned there is because you know i think the idea the embarrassment and shame of losing your home is so high the idea of that happening is that we would happily not go out for dinner or cut spending in other areas or sell our car before we would uh, lose the home right it's something that's like the last line of defense it would take a lot for someone to, you know, cross over that barrier in itself. So really interesting points there just to consider on like moves people can make. The, the other one I, I wonder if you're seeing a bit more of, I imagine that if a, someone's had a house for like, let's say someone's had a house for five years, likelihood of having some equity in the home would be high and potentially even the ability to refinance that home, uh, pull some equity out and then use that as a buffer to ride through this time or to make other changes as need fit would be a strategy that could be done here as well. Well, look, looking at some strategies to um, sort out this fixed rate, if, if, if you're not prepared or you're partially prepared or you didn't realize the, the variable rate was going to be up this high, th- things to think about is um, what's, have you squeezed the bank as far as you can? Like keep asking. I keep asking my bank until they say no. Um, I've deployed uh, some resources into my business to help reprice all my customers to make sure that we're squeezing them far as we can. Uh, if you've um, got a 25-year mortgage or even a 20-year mortgage or a 15-year mortgage, there, there might be an individual personal circumstance that you might want to move that back to 30 years. You might want to um, increase the equity cash resources that you have to get through this time. You might have other things like rental increases, as you just mentioned. There's other costs to decrease. You might, if you don't need the second car, um, if you've only got your own own place, you, where's your se- second car? Do you need that? The credit cards. Now, when the lenders look at things, all the buffers are not just at the headline rate. We talk about we're, we're going to pay 5% and then the banks are going to assess you at 8% because they got the 3% buffer. But it's all the other stuff inside what what is considered non-discretionary spending, private health insurance. Um, not that I'm advocating anything to change in that area because that can be quite important. Do you know what, Aaron? We're, we're definitely not allowed to give financial no. advice. I feel even less qualified to give health advice. We That's should right. still well and truly clear of <laughs> that one. So, so private school fees and private health insurance are over and above the living mechanisms with some of the lenders. Credit cards, some lenders will treat credit cards at 3.8% of the limit to 4.5% of the limit. So 
reducing credit cards, reducing other debts that you have outside the mortgage are going to significantly enhance what you're going to be able to do when you change from a variable to a fixed to a variable rate going forward. So it's not the headline rates or the borrowing that you have, it's what the buffers are inside the calculators. And that's where the competitions derive with the banks because some will choose 75% of rental income, some will choose 45% of your credit limit on your credit card, some will take the actual repayments on your car loan, some will have a buffer on top of that and some will treat others' debts better than their own debts. So it's not just the headline rate, it's what's inside the calculator and what you can do to rein in your own expenses there as well. Offset accounts is another one. I love offset accounts. You can just throw a buckload of cash in there and save a buckload of money as well. So let's unpack that a little bit more. You've just like uh, like a fire hose, Aaron. You've <laughs> unleashed a bunch of things in here. So um, if you're someone trying to potentially you've got a fixed rate that's about to roll off. And now we're talking about the idea of like, what can you actually do with it? And the first one I come out with was the idea of refinancing. And you've really highlighted some things here. If you're on a 20 year mortgage, refinancing that to a 30 would actually bring down the loan payment every month. It would be good cash flow management. Yes, you would see some intri- increased interest cost over the loan, but cash flow management for investors is very important. It could be the difference in keeping the portfolio in a healthy place. Um, the second one you've uh, made, oh, go for it. I was just going to say, with, with regards to loan term changes, like ideally we want to keep everyone's loan term where it is. So if you want to refinance your 20-year mortgage, it's ideal to keep it at a 20-year mortgage, especially if it's your own place and there's no other goal other than to try to reduce some interest rates. But if you can't achieve the hurdle of the buffers that the banks have and you have a specific need for it, there is a case to make to reset the loan terms. So if just trying to keep it a little bit more on the, that yeah, we should try to keep loan terms where they are, but if there's a need, let's move it back. I'll give you another scenario here. Like that's, that's a really good insight on that as well. For myself, I, I'm in a very fortunate position where I've got a, a strong cash flow portfolio and I also have a, a strong income, right? So cash flow today isn't as important to me as it has been at other periods. One of the things I've done, of course, with your assistance, uh, I won't say I did it, you definitely did it, uh, was the idea of going, well, I had some loans that were on interest only and I moved them to principal and interest and I was able to bring down the rate. In some cases, like it was actually like I think (laughs) 0.79 the loan came down. So almost a full percent we were able to get the rate down just by making that change. Now, of course, I have to put the principal into the loan now so cash flow changes a little bit for me. But doing that across my portfolio, I was able to actually make the portfolio substantially more profit, which tied into the second one there you said about like asking the banks for rates, like in that rate deduction. So that combination can be really powerful in this time as well. It's a it's an interesting thing with regards to even even just some more changes related to interest only and principal and interest. And there's a lot of commentary around those particular topics. But two points I'll make here is that when your interest only is coming off a fixed rate, um, you can go from uh, you, you're you're jumping up quite dramatically. So two point six nine fixed rate. Oh, I've got to yes, it became very apparent to me. I was like, whoa. It's intense, like especially yeah. if you were on that two point six nine and you went to five and it rolled off from interest only in principle. Yeah, <sighs> it's yeah not so a fun day. So we we talked about two year fixed rate principal and interest at two six nine being two thousand and twenty five dollars a month, um, an interest only fixed rate at two point six nine, which was being offered 
is only $1,120 a month. So it's already a grand, uh, just under just under a grand cheaper if it was principal and interest at the same interest rate. And then if we jump to 5.69, we're going to be we jumping like a couple of grand up. I was going to say, is that like $1,500 a month difference? More? Well, um, that's so t- two point so the eleven hundred and twenty dollars so that so two thousand and twenty five minus the eleven two zero that it's nine hundred and five at the same interest rate at a five hundred thousand dollar mortgage over thirty years so when you jump off the onto the principal and interest you could be jumping from eleven hundred bucks to nearly three grand wow so that is near two thousand dollar a month difference that's right. So the people that are investors on an interest only and and on a fixed rate, congratulations! It's great that you can save the money now, but be be mindful of what you're going to do in the future, and also be mindful that prior to the last couple of years of low interest rates, we had the government intervention come in to look at reducing the amount of investor interest only loans that were out there by changing the criteria that you actually have to service the loan at the remaining principal and interest term. So if you have a five-year interest only loan on a 30-year mortgage, you've got to achieve the buffers at 25 years, not 30. So they did a lot to reduce the interest only loans out there. And that's proved in the statistics. Back in 2019, there was over $400 billion worth of interest only loans. And today we're looking at around $285 billion in interest only loans. So they did the job that they wanted to do, but just be careful when you are coming off those ones. That's probably where you need to think about what's going on. And the difference between interest only and principal and interest, if it's about a, a one and a half to 2% change, you're probably better off paying principal and interest anyway. And the other point is that with your investment properties, if you if you only wanted one investment property, paying principal and interest, after about four or five years, that property will probably maintain itself at a principal and interest repayment too, mathematically speaking. Not, not your investment strategy conversation, but mathematics, usually around year four, year five of a 30-year mortgage on an investment property, it, it should usually start to balance itself out because the debt's coming down, rents are going up, and all that nice jazz in between. This is one of the parts where we're talking in the introduction about the uh, art versus commodity type thing. And like knowing these things and it's we've had some really interesting conversations like at dinner and when we've caught up, Aaron, about just a lot of investors aren't aware that their borrowing power would be increased if they just did principal and interest loans rather than having everything on interest only because of that, uh, what you just mentioned there about how they do their calculations on, on things post there and payments. Right? So that change alone could be the difference in you actually being able to grow a bigger portfolio even though the cash flow impact has changed there. It really comes down to like, I'm not sure there's a right or wrong way specifically if you've got a portfolio strategy. Like I know people that have done well doing interest only. I know people who have done well doing principal or interest, but it's like you really want to understand the strategy you're following and what's right for you as the investor to hit the goals because my mentality has shifted. I was in that camp of like interest only everything, refinance 30-year loans all the time. And then uh, we were at dinner and you said to me, you know, at some point you're going to have to uh, have a something in the piece for, what did you call it? It was debt reduction strategy. Like at some point mm. you're going to have to deal with this debt. You're not going to want to carry this into your 60s. That's and I'm right. like, I'm in my 30s now and I'm like, <laughs> it, it kind of hit me a bit. It shifted my view in like, well, how am I going to do this and where does this strategy play? Like am I going to grow a bigger portfolio and sell down some to deal with some of this debt? 
am I expecting the properties I'm purchasing to actually pay their own debt? where and how am I going to use business profits or income from other areas to pay down this debt? Like how's this all coming to be? And it's a part where I think the exciting part of being a property investor is going on the run, right? It's the accumulation phase is all the fun. The consolidation and how you're going to manage your debt, whatever your strategy is, not very oftenly talk about, not as sexy. And, and, that, and, and it's, it's not as sexy. How many, how many shows do we pull up on, on YouTube? And, and I know we're both fans of looking at property podcasts and business podcasts and things like that. But do you know the best way, one of the really easiest, logical, mathematical ways to increase your borrowing capacity is to pay down the debt? I don't think it's talked about that often. And, and yes, we've got interest only in principal and interest, but right now in a raising interest rate market, and, and I've, I've remember presenting fives, five and a half percent interest rates when I first started as a mortgage broker back in 2012, where everyone come, oh, that's a really awesome rate, 5.5. How did you get that for me? Great, great. And now I'm presenting 5.2s and 5.1s and everyone's like running for the hills. <laughs> the perspective's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and, and, it's one of those things, interest only has its means and its, its use. If you're accumulating, it can help you get that principal back to add as a deposit. It can be really cool in an accumulation phase where you're able to jump over the hurdles of the, the lender that assesses on remaining principal and interest term. And it also can help you when you've got non-deductible debt like your principal place of residence, but you've actually got to move. What is that? How many times does someone talk to you about, let's take your interest only loan for your first investment property, but you've actually got to think about the $500 that you're saving by paying interest only. And you've actually got to get that $500 a month and actually put it off your owner occupied property. How, how many people get into that level of detail to go, that's what you actually have to do. And when you get your tax return, and you've got all the other mechanisms in there and you've got all this money come back in your tax return, that's not for you to go and put a new kitchen, bathroom or anything in your house. That's actually what, what ask your accountant, what was specifically in my tax return if I'm PAYG or self-employed, what is the, the return that you get on your personal side? What was the effect of your house, the, the investment property versus just your donations to, or motor vehicle expenses or working from home stuff that you can get and claim what was the percentage that you can put back into your lending and if you can put that back in your lending say it was five grand 12 grand if you got 12 grand and you put that off your primary place of residence your borrowing capacity could skyrocket if you keep doing that over and over again and as you got rid of your own mortgage what if you could get rid of your own mortgage and now you have that two three four grand a month that you were paying off your mortgage to now accelerate your investments. It's, I concur. I really concur. Yeah. I, I find it really fascinating. The big sell in going interest only for a lot of people is that, well, if I'm not paying principal off the investment, I'm keeping the tax deductible debt and I can utilize that potentially on my own mortgage. As to your point though, how many people actually follow through with that versus use the cash for other things? Eh, I'm not so sure about that. But I want to come back uh, to the mortgage rate cliff, Aaron, because I think this is something where um, – Laying this all up, and I, I feel like we could do a whole episode on like loan strategy and debt reduction strategies, mm. which we probably will. I think it's a great idea. What do you think the impacts of the mortgage rate cliff are actually going to be on this? Because I, I'm hearing a lot of whispers from you in the idea that a lot of people are getting prepared already. Awareness is high. I can't see the property market collapsing on the back of this because of the idea that many people would prefer to live with their parents than lose their home. 
a lot of people have equity after the run that's happened as well. Like it's not as potentially as dire as people think, or maybe you think it is. So what do you think potentially is going to occur here? Um, <clears throat> well, we've got the, um, the doom and gloom out there to help people prepare. Um, don't take it as doom and gloom. Just take it as a reminder that you've got to prepare for you're going to have to scale a cliff and it's going to be overnight. Uh, number two is that we've got this, the concept that we unpacked a little bit before, you might want to revise your strategy on investment. You may need to, whether it's putting a tenant into the place that the, um, the repayment's going to go up, that you don't have a tenant to help and you might want to rent somewhere else. You may have to do a bit of a swap, swapsy, um, or I don't know, over this time of period with my kids, I play, we play a game called Go Fish. I'm not sure whether you've played that and you, you go, cool, do you, do you have a, I think we play the one with um, Bluey. Do you have Bluey? And my daughter gives me Bluey. And that's swapping the strategy around. You might want to, someone, I might want to give you, sell you one of my properties and you might want to sell one of your properties to me. Like there's going to be this go fish swapsy individualized strategy going to go out there. So that what suits- Can we, can we pause yeah. on that for a second? Go I just want to unpack that. So you, you're in the idea, let's say someone's been massively into negatively gearing. Mm. This might be the time they swap a negatively geared asset for maybe a commercial that's got a positive cash flow experience to kind of balance out this in their strategy if they believe rates are going to remain at this level or even potentially go higher. So asset swapping yeah. could be a potential thing someone could look at to deal with this mortgage rate cliff in itself, which is an interesting idea. So re really cool from a, a game that you play with your daughter through to property investment strategy. I think that's that's a really interesting I, thing. I, I did admire yeah. you brought that together. Yeah. We went to Go Fish Bluey style, <laughs> which uh, I'm sure Jack will love. I might have to get a deck. But um, po point being is that that's an interesting concept in itself. And, and getting rid of lower yield properties to buying higher yield properties is, is probably that concept that you were saying there. Commercial can be a different kettle of fish altogether. Um, but yeah, that having the right yields like you, you've got to cover your day-to-day -day expenses and and that's where the yield comes into investment interest rate and there is a there is also a subject to people that probably need a tax deduction as well if you if you're a high income earnest may need to have they might be able to afford the four five six million dollar property in the middle of sydney or melbourne and that could be quite advantageous for them to buy with the um, cooling off a little bit of the market to get a, a bit more of a bargain. So there's always people that are out there buying. There's always people that need to readjust their their strategy, um, whether it's renting, whether it's selling, whether it's um, swapping properties from Bluey to um, uh, to a Go Fish traditional style. So there, that's where I would go. Do you know that's so interesting, Aaron? Is um. Where I did really well in property is that in the very early stages of the uh, pandemic, I was a buyer when people were sellers, right? People wanted out of the market because there was genuine fear that the world might end. Noting I had some of that fear as well, right? I actually thought this could take down the world. And I decided that I would rather go down with as many properties as possible yeah. than live in fear. But the point being is that when there is doom and gloom around, it actually is the opportunity as a buyer provided you're in the position to do so. And it's funny you mention it because that's actually what I'm deploying now. Like for myself, I am being a touch opportunistic. If Melbourne and Sydney keep taking the hits they are and we end up with some very motivated sellers because of this mortgage race cliff in this example here, like I want to be ready to strike. Like I'm not seeing this as a doom and gloom. I'm seeing it, well, if this is what's going on, this is buying opportunity. 
Where if markets are booming and all the news is good, maybe I need to reframe to selling opportunity or being more strategic in the place that can fit, right? I mean, what is it? Right season, right strategy? That that's right, and and what, and and if you boil it down, like um, if you're if you're buying a if a brick is worth a dollar, but the sh- the the price of the the company's up really high, and the company price on their share comes down, they're still selling the bricks at a dollar. Like it's it's really interesting how you can look at the metrics behind things and what is what is calculated and what is not. What influences does government have on different areas? Like we, we could make a wild prediction here and go, well, the data is calculated and then they change how the data is calculated. Uh, if we look at percentages and we look at um, surveys that don't survey 100% of the population, we, we can interpret the data a whole different way and the emotion put onto it and how we react to it um, is different. Like if, if I'm running late to a meeting, do I just get really angry that I'm running late or do I take the opportunity to make another phone call? And, sort out another customer and and that's the same with the government like the rba um i I feel like and and probably right to say that the governor of the rba is actually appointed by the government um the data around inflation and things is is what's included what's not included is around the public service and what they're putting in and what advice they're getting so that's that's a really interesting thing about do we think interest rates are going to keep going up or they're going to come off or whatever to- else is there too. Totally. It's interesting, right? It's like the, clearly the government doesn't want property to crash. You only have to exactly. look at how many government em, uh, employees own property. It's really interesting. If you look to parliament, I think it's uh, on average each member of parliament owns 2.6 properties. And I was like, I'm like that is hilarious. So like uh, – Incentives, we'll look at it there. But the general nature is they don't want house prices to fall. But then to take it further, they also appoint the RBA and decide what's calculated in inflation and assign spending and stimulus in the economy. It's like the incentives are are very, very uh, interesting. We'll leave that word there. What what you're um, alluding to, though, is that based on these perspectives, and there's two that really come out as like investors have options. There's yep. still buyers out there. You can refinance. There's things you can do. Like this interest rate uh, sudden cliff hit isn't like everyone just has to take it. There's things you can do to embrace for this impact or scale this cliff as you go through it. Do you think that on the basis of what we're talking about here, though, there's the potential for this mortgage rate cliff to push the country into recession or see any more massive downfall or a big downfall at all? Or do you think that's just been exaggerated? Well, We've got some recent history to think about here, and I'm only talking the last eight eight interest rate rises. And we we started the onset of the the, the co- podcast about variable and fixed, and that's where we've got this cliff coming in that the fixed rate will go up. But all the people that are on variable rates have had to pay the extra money right now, and I haven't seen any exuberant pay rises. I haven't seen exuberant. Um, in the general nature, specifically individually and skill-based, I'm seeing a lot of people getting a lot more money and I'm seeing a lot of the 2022 tax returns on self-employed being very, very strong coming out of the pandemic. Um, so there's there's ability to overcome the buffers of the banks. But people in the main that haven't had any changes in wages and stuff are actually paying the variable rate now. So that's an interesting thought to think about. So yeah, you might be sitting back as a fixed rate investor, owner-occupier, watching your colleague who has a variable rate pay more and more and more each month, but they still pay it. So 
And you didn't take a fixed rate out just to think that it's going to be there forever. It's going to expire. So you've already had to think ahead on that one by actually taking that product. So from there are people that are going to be unprepared. There are people that are going to be prepared. And there's people that are going to talk to their colleagues that are on variable rates that have actually had to pay it. So I feel like we're not going to see the full effect of all the interest rate rises for many months to come, even if not 12 months to come before they see what happens to inflation, looking at the history of that data. Um, but I, I feel like we're not going to go, I don't, my, my gut says not going into a recession. My gut says we're going to go a little bit more individual and see how we can fix people's portfolios via lending or other mechanisms there, renting, selling, consolidating, swapping, all that stuff. I, I don't think we're recessions there. Interesting. So uh, your general view is this isn't going to be as a big event as some media outlets would lead us to believe in general based on your thesis there. Um, I actually tend to agree with this. I think there's too many tailwinds for property. And to your point, if it was going to crash substantially, surely what we've seen so far would have done so. Right? Yeah. I, I would have expected bigger drops to have occurred in the uh, rate rises we've had, right? Because the psychology of the market has been bearish in general, and it's like for it not to have fallen further would indicate that it potentially won't. Again, not this is speculation, pure speculation. Do not take your thesis <laughs> out about what Charlie and Aaron say on a podcast. The, the other side of it is I see a lot of tailwinds with immigration. I still see a lot of hungry buyers out there. Like I, I'm very fortunate I have insights to many buyers agents as well, and they're still got many clients coming on board who want to buy property. They're not seeing a slowdown in investor demand either. And I suspect you're not seeing a slowdown nope. in investor demand. I'm sure you're seeing people, uh, I believe you even said you have a settlement today earlier oh, yeah. in this episode. Yep. So yep. it's like, so, yep. it's happening. So, and and that's that's the strange thing this year. We are sitting at the 30th of the 12th, 2022. And even between Christmas and New Year, we're seeing settlements and we're seeing restructuring of lending. And and the majority of that is has been investors that has just lagged from before Christmas to after Christmas. Uh, and that that's a that's a big a big interesting area. We're still seeing a lot of purchases go through. Like we've got cooling off periods running off on people buying properties and cooling off obviously being the due diligence area of making sure you're right to exchange and be approved and the loans. We're having that expire over the over this period of time as well, where where normally banks are going on the skeleton staff. Like most people want to have a break and spend time with family as well. So. Um, yeah, doing doing that settlement, I was I was standing in a in a furniture store, um, just sending a text message to confirm that my client was all all good to go. So he, I'll finish with this question here, Aaron. I mentioned earlier in the episode that personally, I'm being opportunistic at this time. I'm actually kind of hoping for a little bit more fear in the market, some great op opportunities to buy, and I would love to buy a property in the first half of 2023, a, a really well priced good asset I look back on and go, damn, that was a good decision. But you're also an investor. You're not just a mortgage broker. Right? You're also plenty of other things as well. I will say that as well. <laughs> Father, you know, husband, all those things. But what are you personally doing? How are you playing this yourself? Because I think this is a really big indicator of like, uh, I mean, are you drinking the Kool-Aid or what is Aaron looking at? Oh, so I'm, I'm currently, um, I've, personally, I've, I've got a property that I'm constructing. So let's just not make it something that I'm going to settle are you, are you, on. And are you sure you don't like self-punishment at this point? I feel like anyone doing development or constructing <laughs> in this market, wow, you must like 
<laughs> so um, I should have a slab down in in going into January on my investment property, um, and and I've taken an a, a approach that I want. Um, and and you could probably say that I'm a bit bullish, like eight eight interest rate rises, and here I go. I'm going to buy an investment property, and I'm going to construct it so I have six to eight months without a tenant, and then I'm going to wait for that, and then I'm got all those other things that happen when you do construction. But um, I'm I'm. I'm playing that game to do, I do chunking in my own portfolio because I've got a business, I've got a family, like I'll buy a property, then I'll, I'll double down on getting the income up, then I'll buy another one and then I'll double down, I'll buy another one, double down. And that, that for me personally allows me to, to scale up all the areas of life to be able to accommodate what I want to do because I learned very on early on with investing is that you have to understand the lending metrics first and the calculators first. And it's nothing, nothing to do with loyalty to the bank. You've got to meet their their calculator, and it doesn't matter how long you've been with the bank. You've still got to meet their calculator. So that's where it is. So, for me personally, I'm 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 constructing my investment property at the moment, and it's going to be awesome. It's going to be a bit of a ride, but it's going to come out the other end, and it's going to have a great yield, great great ability to add to my portfolio from there and it will spit off some cash even in this interest rate environment to help me even pay down my own debt guess what my, my mortgage is, interest rates have risen too i'm paying a bit more like everyone else so i might get you in a mortgage but i'm, I'm there i'm doing it as well well, there you go. We might even do a potential episode on uh, going through that process of getting land and building in this time and developing. I think it'd be really interesting to understand what it's like and been like with all the challenges that have gone on with rising costs, supply chains, interest rates, doom and gloom the works. But before we wrap this episode up, Aaron, um, if someone is looking to refinance or potentially needs some help with strategy around how to deal with this mortgage rate cliff or if they have a fixed rate loan, what's the best way they can get in contact with you? <clears throat> well, the, the, the cool thing is that um, the, the broking firm, Diagnostics Finance, that I run, we have uh, four other brokers and a, a support team to be able to um, help you uh, when you need it. And the best way to contact us is there's um, through the propertyinvesting.com um, website and also um, through um, my own personal website, dandf.com.au, and we can help you out from there. Of course, I'll make sure to include links in wherever you're watching this episode. But a big thank you for coming on the show today, Aaron, a really interesting conversation. I'm sure you'll be back on the show uh, soon to talk about some of these other topics. That's it for this episode of Property and Investing. As Grant would say, something, 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 come and join the email list opt in below. There's probably a newsletter with this episode. Anyway, it's been nice to have you on the podcast. That's it for this one.